Hello, Wild Food from the Rangelands is back. It's been a long time between podcasts. Thanks for sticking around, whoever is listening. Let's talk about dogs. Remember when you could go bush with your dog? Baits have killed so many domestic dogs after years of baiting campaigns that many pastoralists have given up having a dog, especially over the last decade in our neck of the rangelands when baiting in the Midwest has become a habitual approach to the problems facing sheep producers. It's such a horrible death to witness. This has been going on a long time and has even made it into the literary lexicon of Australia. Remember when Robin Davidson's dog Diggity takes a bait in that wonderful book Tracks? That's 1978. Part of the whole dog problem has its roots in economic and social change. When the bottom last fell out of the wool market in the early 1990s, people across the rangelands, and remember we're talking about a huge proportion of Australia and WA geographically when we talk about the rangelands, they got out of sheep in a hurry and dropped the ball in terms of keeping an eye on canine numbers. When that happened, people lost the incentive to keep these numbers down and populations have built up. And now, of course, while wool and lamb meat is on the up and up, many pastoralists are struggling to find their feet in a world where the land has lost a lot of its fertility and they lack capital and therefore labour to run viable businesses. The upshot of the general attitude to free-ranging dogs is that if you want to take your dog inland, you'll need to muzzle them. Some people who spend a lot of time in the bush use a muzzle that has fly wire in the end. A dog need only lick a bait or lick a paw that's trodden on a bait to die. Anecdotally, these baits can be picked up and dropped by crows in areas meant to be bait-free. Theoretically, nowhere is safe. The arguments for and against baiting vary depending on which zone you're operating from. If you're conservation-minded, then you'll be naming the free-ranging dogs of the rangelands dingoes, as in Canis lupus dingo, stressing their qualities as apex predators and their long residence in this land. If you're involved in livestock production, you'll probably prefer the term wild dog, which takes a bit of the gloss off the image of the dingo as a noble, charismatic and valued national icon, as it's designed to do. Figures have recently been revised. They now think the dingo arrived with Asian seafarers, perhaps between 3,500 and 5,000 years ago. In terms of the history of Australia, the dogs became a problem for animal growers within a few decades of colonialism. In the southern rangelands, the area of Midwest WA where I live, the dogs have been a business model changing problem since the 1990s when they started to stream onto station land down from inland, deep in the desert. I remember a discussion I had with Helen Broad, a woman who lived on Mulga country most of her married life. On Millie Millie Station in the northwest Murchison, in her words, I was in the bush. We were mustering when I saw a mother dingo walking calm as you like down the middle of the sandy creek, followed by a string of puppies. That was 1994, and looking back, it was the beginning of the end. Emma Folkes-Taylor from Ewan Station, that's on the Grenoff, says it was 2009 when their fortunes changed. 
their lambing numbers dropped 40% overnight with the arrival of the dog. Luckily, this Ewan mob got in early with a small cell idea. Initially driven by their conservation push, fencing off areas of the Greneff River, they've been able to keep a sheep business going to the present day when both wool and meat prices are much more sustainable for producers. The Jones of Murrum and Bellardi Station out at Mount Magnet are currently engaged in working with neighbours to construct fences that will keep out grazing animals like roos and goats as well as the wild dogs, carving big cell paddocks out of enormous areas of land coming off the state barrier fence. This might allow them to keep the meat and wool industry alive in their corner of the rangelands. John Jones talks with humour about the dingo. He refers to them disparagingly as Indian camp dogs, attempting to push them off their pedestal as Australian icons. His story is that this mob of ill-bred mongrels made their way over to this part of the world and should be given the status of pests rather than lauded as charismatic beasts. According to geneticists, there's some difference between states in the wild dog slash dingo story to do with the fact that after the Northern Territory, WA has the most genetically pure dingoes, something that excites the geneticists and backs conservation-minded thinkers. But as 80% is considered genetically pure, speaking myself from the perspective of what could be called an invasive species, I'm not sure what to do with this information. In my time at Edar Station, east of Yalgu, I saw a corpse of a dog that a station bloke had shot. To my eyes, it was a dingo. But the pastoralist took the time to show me that it actually had a slightly odd jaw for a dingo. He told me he'd once got some DNA tests done on the dog he had trapped and received information that they were 94% dingo. That leaves 6% mutt-mutt. I'm not sure what this proves as humans are apparently only 1% off being great apes and not that far off being cucumbers, perhaps the genetic story is not the only one we need to be looking at when we're trying to make judgments on dogs in the rangelands. For the pastoralist, this 6% was a licence to kill. For someone else, it indicates rare genetic purity. Being a bit of a permaculturalist at heart, I think all things that survive deserve the life they have, and genetic purity has unpleasant ramifications. Let's look at it from the human perspective. I'm 100% self-described West Australian, but I'm pretty sure my DNA would not help my case. My sense is that Canis Schmanus, a dog is a dog is a dog. A better way of looking at this, I reckon, is through the lens of behaviour. Some free-ranging dogs are more solitary than others. Some like to be part of a pack, but pack structure is apparently a fluid and changing thing. Pastoralists, and most are pretty set on killing dogs, whatever you call them, because they demonstrably eat, upset and harass their stock. They have stories that dingoes only have one litter a year and hybrids will have many litters a year. But is this true? My convictions have been shaken in conversation with different people, including researchers, and again, from stories I've heard, it seems that some dogs, whatever their genetic makeup, are cold stone killers, while others are capable of sharing the land with pastoralists and not doing too much damage. 
I've also learned to look at plants through the lens of behaviour or function is the better word for something as rooted as a plant. It really doesn't matter where the plant comes from. What matters is what function it performs in the landscape. This I get from the permaculture mobs and land restoration textbook as written by that wayward genius Peter Andrews. What is clear and known to most dog lovers is that dogs are opportunistic eaters. Everyone seems agreed that for free-ranging rangeland canines, the fave food is kangaroo, closely followed by goat. Sheep are not their first choice. But they will essentially eat what is easiest, meaning that after a good rain, when frogs and insects abound, they eat frogs and insects. Having seen the size of moths that crawl out of the ground after a good soaking in Chapman Valley, just out of Geraldton, I can imagine that a belly full of fatty moths would satisfy the appetite of any canis. Dogs in the desert are the apex predators, and you haven't been reading your Barbara Kingsolver novels if you don't understand that apex predators are a natural and essential part of the ecosystem. Dogs eat anything, lizards, seeds, fruits, grass, echidnas, fresh and alive. But you would think that apex hunters like to eat other animals and would see the station sheep as pretty poor game. Older dogs, it seems to be generally agreed, are far too canny to fall for a bait and generally can sniff out and avoid even the most cleverly laid trap. But, and here is why we seem to have an ongoing decades-long interest in baiting, you might get the odd puppy. The chosen bait poison, 1080, is, and I quote, a naturally occurring odourless compound which occurs in approximately 30 species of native Australian plants. 1080 is biodegradable and although manufactured, it retains all of its natural characteristics, including diluting to nothing in water, being consumed and broken down by bacteria and fungi into harmless compounds. Thus says the literature. But is it odourless? How do we know? As far as I know, this has not been scientifically proven. We just know we can't smell it. And nobody has spent the time and money to run the trials that test a dog's nose. I know it's entirely possible to go on a bait run and see bung arrows, large monitor lizards, waddling calmly in the tyre tracks, helping themselves to horse meat laced with 1080. I've witnessed this myself when playing the role in the passenger seat of throwing the baits out the window when we had to backtrack for some reason. It was both a funny and demoralising sight, as you can imagine. And I should say, information you might not have is that native animals are immune to 1080 as it is a naturally occurring substance in the environment. And this includes not just lizards, but the other main bait eaters, crows, eagles, etc. Previous to the bait run, local station people had spent a long day with sharp knives at a cut-up day at Malangada Station, inland from Yalgu, slicing and dicing large lumps of meat, injecting poison and spreading the pieces on racks to harden up. Pretty hard labour, not to mention the diesels subsequently burnt trying to cover all known dog hangouts over huge areas of station land. As a new pastoralist, I found it all really dispiriting, especially as the jury seemed to be out on whether baiting is really a cost-effective way of dealing with the problem, and whether the problem, in inverted commas, 
as currently defined, is not part of the problem. Like many of these things, it's become established practice, money changes hands in the sourcing of the meat, routines are established, and for whatever reason, including habit, people become invested in sustaining the whole bait industry. I spoke to Tracy Kreplin, research scientist currently working with the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. I'll admit I was looking for some data that could back my own observational and anecdotal based opinions that baiting is a poor cousin of the whole Save the Rangeland Sheep Industry program currently on offer. The other aspects include the barrier fences, cell grazing and the hiring of doggers, people trained to track and dispatch dogs. I must admit that any fact-based data that is snuck into this story comes of our long conversation I had with Tracy as she spoke to me from her office in Northam. She kindly sent me a research paper based on work done on two stations in the southern rangelands, the gist of which found out that from 900 baits laid, 300-odd were taken, but mostly by lizards and crows and the wild dog uptake was just over 1%. The baits were laid and the cameras monitored animal movements, determining that there was plenty of wild dog action, just not much take-up of the baits. Of the four baits that were taken, all by young dogs, three of these were impregnated with a fish oil lure. What I get from this is that a whole lot of baiting is going on to not much effect, which appeals to my convictions. But what the researchers have determined is that there might be a lot more that could be done to make the baits more effective. For instance, the sight of dogs seeing but not taking the baits indicates that this might be a learned aversion. These are smart animals, and they've become used to the baits because the same meat has been used for many years. Doggers understand that habit is a killer. They're always trying to trick, entice and steal into the animal's natural curiosity to get them to take a bait. Tracy's opinion is that a lot could be done to overcome this problem by trialling different meats and adding tasty lures. Also, she thinks that the pastoralists could change their tactics by storing the baits and using them at strategically targeted times. For instance, baits quickly lose their effectiveness if they get rained on, and there are prime times to lay baits, when dogs are on the move, when when they're looking for mates, or when pups are venturing out on their own. In a word, baits could be employed in a more targeted, nuanced way. Some station owners are also trying their own methods. One canny bloke nails his baits up on tree trunks, which he claims is an effective way of stopping the non-target native species from eating them. One thing baits have done has been to take out the foxes really effectively. They are voracious and careless eaters and can easily be knocked out by baits. Perhaps the only good thing about dog baiting from my perspective as a new pastoralist with not much invested in a sheep business was that I could free-range a little bunch of chooks, refugees from the city, who lived truly wonderful lives. Once they got over the shock of the vastness of their new backyard, they were happy campers, free-ranging around in the creek at the back of the old homestead. But there was cats around, and there's a thought that with the foxes gone, the cats are having a better time, and we know the damage cats do. Unintended consequences.
The doggers are an interesting mob. If more state and individual money was directed to hiring a web of doggers, it would possibly make an impact on dog numbers and definitely have positive flow-on effects, like more ears and eyes on remote zones. Doggers save time and money for pastoralists by keeping an eye on what's happening in far-flung corners of the station, checking windmills and fences are in working order, and they tell such great stories around the fire at night. This is a really specialised job for people with advanced bush skills. But labour is an extremely expensive option. Perhaps the whole thing smacks of old school romanticism and there seriously is not much energy for this as a solution. Rod Butler from Gimlet Ridge Farm just out of Morrowa, border country between farming and pastoral land, has been introducing regenerative agricultural principles on his land for many years. This involves both crop planting and allowing for multi-species including perennials, introducing shorter and more intense rotational grazing programs for his sheep, and generally trying a more nature-based, nature-mimicking approach to farming. Over the decades, factors such as increased biodiversity, better soil microbiome, and green cover on the paddocks over the hot months has encouraged a big growth in the number and diversity of insects, lizards and other small critters. What Rod has noticed is that while his neighbours are suffering debilitating stock losses to dogs, his sheep remain relatively untouched. Rod's theory is that the dogs, as opportunistic hunters, use his land for the easy tucker supplied by insects and small creatures and snack on sheep elsewhere, but this is only part of the whole story. It also involves input from local Indigenous people and Alan Savory, the South African founder of holistic management and creator of principles that are having a global influence in land, animal and human management. With luck, I'll tell this story soon. But for the meantime, Rod has been working intensively with his sheep, moving them across paddocks under pressure, release techniques encouraging them to move as a mob, both instituting and breaking patterns of feeding, and above all, monitoring their behaviour closely, so he can see what they like, see where they go, and direct their energies effectively to get the outcomes he wants. Trust is a word he uses when talking about the relationship he's cultivating with his sheep. He carefully encourages the bond between ewes and their lambs. Some of his ewes range from 5 to 11 years old, unheard of ages in sheep circles but he keeps them because they're incredible mothers and they know the land they know how to feed themselves on natural pasture and how to pass on this knowledge to the mob he has learnt to work with this energy another word rod favors is complexity he works holistically wild dogs are part of the picture and he's not interested in putting big energy into cutting out parts of the picture be they weeds or dogs He's working with patterns and systems to find out how to manage all that is, to steer the ship that is his farm in a way that recognises and works in with the complexity of natural and human systems. What all agree is that baiting has to be part of a broader strategy. Guardian animals like marama sheep dogs and alpacas have had some success, particularly in agricultural regions. Ideas introduced under the general term of stress-free stockmanship that, among other things, encourages animals to mob up, like Rob I just talked about, can be effective. 
Cell fencing has a part to play for those with the money and the labour and the drive required to trial this method in the rangelands. There will be a lot to learn from the stations going down this path, not least in the area of erosion control, the art of putting up a fence that doesn't become tomorrow's creek, as Henry from Bellardi Station is working out. And the boffins, you can imagine they are rejoicing if grazing, grazing numbers can be controlled and animals move continuously across paddocks allowing rest periods for the grasses and permanent water sources dealt with differently, perennial grasses will be encouraged to return, rainwater will stay in the soil, eroded zones will start to heal, etc. The theories indicate that stocking rates can be doubled, even tripled, while the land self-heals. But as my grand might have said, there is many a slip twixt cup and lip. And when in history did an exclusion wall work? And I mean work for all of life, not just for those controlling the wall. And if this is a what did the Romans ever do for us style of question, please tell me about it. I have huge respect for those pastoralists still persevering in making a living on the country they love. When John from Murram Station isn't riffing on Indian camp dogs, he's got a bit of a thing about eagles. Reckons he wants to box some up and send them over to rural Victoria where he heard somewhere that they'd run out of eagles. No one likes to talk about eagles in the rangelands or dispatching eagles, but they do take an extraordinary amount of young lambs. I thought it a rangeland myth, but anecdotally, eagles take lambs and around lambing season can be seen in flocks of up to 40 in a paddock. These are staggering numbers. Roads and road users have created lots of roadkill. There's been a long establishment of permanent water and, and other inducements that have created huge imbalances in natural systems across our whole rangeland. Everything is awry. At Woolene Station in the Murchison, they don't bait for dogs. The reason being they need predators to keep the roo numbers down and on the move to allow the perennial grasses to get a foothold in the vast paddocks. They are pursuing their dream of restoring fertility to what is one of the greatest and richest of the early pastoral leases. I saw a video of station owners Dave and Francis walking over a field of native perennials and was inspired. For the return of the kangaroo grass, sure, but the bit I loved was seeing their dogs running around beside them. The return of the station pet as a free-ranging creature, reclaiming their proper place within the pastoral story. If there's a moral to this story, it is about the big picture. Complex systems have complex problems. And when the symptoms are revealing that things are wildly out of balance, it requires subtle thinking, bigger thinking, than the solutions on offer at the moment. Maybe it's time to give real voice to the paradigm shift that I've been tracking in my pathways through soil and human health. Let's pay heed to the people who are studying on restoring balance across the whole of the landscape for all ecosystems, for all living things, rather than giving most of the airtime to those still messing around in the areas of exclusion and destruction. <laughs>